The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Last week, as we saw Jesus wrap up his extended teaching of the parables, we saw him ask his disciples, have you understood all these things? That was chapter 13, Matthew, verse 51. I just laid out in front of you a whole bunch of of some specific, important, particular truths about the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. Did you hear that all with understanding? And they replied, yes. They understood, more or less. They they didn't get it all perfectly, of of course, but by comparison to those around, yeah, because most around them don't get it. So we saw him point out earlier in the chapter, lots of people hear Jesus but without understanding. If you were here a few weeks back when we looked at verses 11 to 17, you'll recall that to explain why most hear him but don't really understand. Jesus first pointed at the sovereignty of God and his choice. And then next, he quoted the prophet Isaiah, and as he did so, he was also pointing at human responsibility. Actions, choices that people make that have consequences. Many hear but don't really hear, and they see but they don't really perceive what they're looking at. And then he Isaiah's reference, because their hearts are dull, their ears are stopped up, they've closed their eyes. People encounter truth about God and what he's doing in Jesus. It's right in front of them, they see it, they hear it. But then they process it and they make decisions about what they're going to do with it and why, and all that has consequences. They're responsible for it if and when they decide to turn away and say no. That's what brings us to our passage today at the end of Matthew 13 and then on into Matthew chapter 14. After seeing the disciples hearing with some understanding, we now have two incidences where we see people who heard without understanding. They didn't get it. And what we're going to see here is going to serve as a warning to us as we want to properly interact with it and receive Jesus ourselves. So this is a warning here. But it's not a warning with a lot of heat in it. Jesus says, if we were to to elaborate on this, and we'll mention about, we could see that Jesus' response to to both of these situations is essentially, okay. It's not, it's okay. That's a warning, but it's not a warning with a lot of heat in it. So something that we need to hear here and be careful with and receive thoughtfully. We want to respond well to Jesus, and we see two instances where people did not. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. This is beginning in Matthew 13, verse 53, on through chapter 14, verse 13. I'm going to read these two and then draw out two observations. Beginning in 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, 
Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, and he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it into her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And pause there. Two observations. The first one's much longer than the second one. Offense at Jesus leads many to unbelief and great loss. Offense at Jesus leads many to unbelief and great loss. This rises out of the first passage as it recounts the visit that Jesus made to his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth, if you were here at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you may recall that it is, it's a small place out in the sticks of Galilee. It's, it's out there, way, way off the beaten path. Small town. And Piecing things together here with the other Gospels, it seems likely, not certain, but likely that this is the same visit to Nazareth that Luke records. And he, he tells it, you can tell that he moved it to the, the very beginning of his Gospel, and he tells it in a different way, probably recounts a different part of the visit, so as to serve as an introduction to what Luke has to say about Jesus. It, se- it seems likely it's the same visit, not certain, but either way, this is the only one that Matthew tells us about, and And he presents it to us to point out something that might be surprising. The hometown hero is rejected by his hometown, not embraced. Why is that? I mean, didn't they know him? Didn't they see all that was going on with him? Didn't, Didn't they understand? Well, sort of, yes and no. And this response of theirs is going to be our point. They saw, but they didn't. They heard, but they didn't. And there's a reason for that. Verse 54. He taught them in their synagogue. The grammar there could mean that he had been teaching them and he taught them you know, more than once. But at least it means he taught them long enough for them to hear it. 
They were hearing him teach and hearing his wisdom themselves, not just hearing about it, they heard it themselves. And of course, they also did hear about his reputation of being a very great performer of all sorts of mighty works, all the stuff that we've been seeing in this gospel so far. Individual, mighty and amazing things of healing and cleansing, and then also for just masses of crowds, countless people who would come. He raises the dead, he casts out demons, he controls nature, and on and on and on and on. It is an amazing display of mighty divine authority in untold volume. We've seen that. That Jesus comes to their hometown little synagogue and sits down to be the guest preacher of the day, and they were astonished, it says, in verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And you could say that, and it might sound like that's a compliment. And you could say that, and it might sound like that's at least like a wonder, like kind of, kind of surprised, but it's not. This is not a question looking for an answer. It's a question formally, but it's a question that is expressing indignation. Who are you to teach like this? Who are you to say these things to us and to carry yourself in this manner and do these sorts of things? Who are you to imply what you are implying about yourself and about us? Verse 56 essentially is, get a load of this guy, the carpenter's kid. Then they list off his earthly family. We talked about this back in, back, back in chapter 12. After Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary, then Joseph and Mary had numerous biological, natural children after him. So the boys, his earthly, natural brothers, are named here along with Mary. And the sisters are also mentioned here. There's no mention of the father Joseph, probably because he was dead by this point. But they list off his natural family, his earthly family. Why? Because they're saying, we know you. And we know your place in the social setting of this village. You're the carpenter's son. That's your lane here. I hired you to fix my cart. Your sister married my cousin. I paid you to do work for me. You built my house. Carpenters did more than just like, like put stuff back together. They built things. They were like a, con a contractor and a woodworker and a hugely important job, but certainly not the town rabbi. That's not his lane. You're the carpenter's son. Where'd you go to college? Oh, you didn't. And seminary? Oh, you didn't do that either. And yet here you are carrying on, putting on airs here, acting like the teacher, traveling all around trying to make a name for yourself, and then you come back here and say these things to us. We know better. Who are you to act like this? And they took offense at him. Verse 57. That's the point. That's what we have to consider here. It is true that in some places, at some times, there are people who, who hold Jesus away, who reject Jesus, or close off to him because they really don't know anything about him. There's a, there's a massive knowledge gap. That, that is true, and is still true in some places in the world today. But that was not the case in Nazareth, 
And probably it's not the case in the places where we live and walk. People have seen and have heard at least enough about Jesus to form an opinion. Make a response to him. And people habitually respond to what they've heard by holding it, by, by holding him at arm's length and shutting him out. And that is ultimately because they take offense at him. Why are they offended? He didn't like overtly insult them or make fun of them or anything. I mean, what, what, what's offensive here? The clue is in Jesus' comment about not giving him the honor here, the honor that he deserves. They're insulted that he expects them to honor him above themselves. He's not come home to slot himself right back into the community as an everybody's equal here sort of way. If he'd, if he'd done that, if he'd kind of come back in and slot himself in and maybe even downplayed some of the things he'd done, they perhaps would have been proud of him. You know, hometown boy does big things for God. But that's not how he carries himself. If, if the parables that he just told are any clue, and they are, and if Luke's account of his visit to Nazareth is any clue, and, and it is, how he presented himself when he arrived back in his hometown with these people who'd known him since he was that high was, I alone am the king of the heavenly kingdom. I'm the one the entire Old Testament is about. I'm full of compassion and I am full of gracious love for sure. But all divine authority has been given to me and I am the judge of all of the earth and that includes you. I have not come to fit right back in. I have come to be over. I'm God in flesh now sitting here in front of you. I'm the one who carries the name Lord, and to me every knee will bow, including yours. And they are offended. They got the message. He, he's, not, he's not telling it in some like pugnacious way. Again, it's not like, so there. You read Luke's account. He he read the prophetic passage and sat down and said, today that is fulfilled in your hearing. Right here. Very calmly, seated in front of him. And they heard it. They heard it. They heard everything that implied, everything that he's saying, and they do not want to go there. They will not go there. Though all the evidence argues that they should. Who cleanses people? Who controls nature? Who raises the dead? Who commands the demonic forces? Who teaches the law with such wisdom? Never mind the facts. I do not. We do not. We will not go there. And they shut their hearts to him in unbelief. That's the final assessment. They stand in unbelief at the very end of the passage. Verse 58 that's human responsibility. 
seeing what's there to be seen and not wanting to go there, refusing to believe it, refusing to embrace it, and instead going a different direction. And that's the problem with the world. Rejection of Jesus is never primarily an information or an intellectual problem. That's not the problem. It's deeper than that. It is offense at the claims that rub me, and right there with a capital M, that rub me the wrong way. That violate my sense of what should be. That's the problem with the world, a problem of the command, the demand, the call to yield honor in surrendered submission. It's good to realize this about the world out there. It's, it's helpful to realize this about what's going on. It makes us alert to what's really behind. It doesn't take long to just search through YouTube and find a video or find some sort of a podcast where the latest person is denying Jesus and arguing for this and deconstructing the Christian faith. Or when, when the latest atheist book comes out that's actually denying the existence of God completely. That stuff's everywhere. You can find that everywhere. And when you read that, it's, it's helpful to know what's going on. There's nothing new in what the YouTube video, what the podcast, what the book, nothing new. This has been going on for thousands of years. There are no new questions. There are no new objections. And there's nothing that hasn't already for thousands of years been truthfully and reliably and thoroughly answered. So why does it persist? Why is there another book published regurgitating the same? What, what's going on? This rejection persists because something in, deep in the human heart does not want the alternative. A life yielded to Jesus with him honored with all of our allegiance, him honored as Lord, his word honored as our authority. The world does not want that. Probably right there it's helpful turn our thinking from the world out there and make it a little more personal. Certainly the most direct takeaway from this incident is not just to learn about other people. The most direct takeaway would be to, to see that there's a warning here for every person who is looking at Jesus, listening to what he says, and then here's something that it finds a little hard. This is many, many, many people. So all I can ask you is, is it you? Many, many, many people. Look at this, listen to this, and see Jesus who is, who is full of compassion and who is loving towards the lowly and the outcast and is so very wise and obviously is full of power. And obviously he has no time whatsoever for hypocrisy and no time whatsoever for self-righteousness and has no time whatsoever for the abuse of others, for the oppression of the weak. And, and you look at that and you say, huh, 
That's good. That's, that's good. I wonder. I mean, I'm attracted to that. That's, that's good. And then you hear him say that he's God Almighty and that surrendered faith in him is the only way to be made right with God. And the exclusivity of Jesus kind of hits you. One and only way, me. Or else you face the judgment which is real and hell which is real. Hell. Hell. Hmm. Are you offended by that? Then you hear him keep teaching and he says, you, you hear him say, you, you, get, you begin to catch his drift as he calls you a sinner and says that you are not a good person. There is no one good, no, not one, and that includes every single one of us, none of us. Are you offended by that? He says that you have to yield to him. You have to surrender all of your all to him, everything on the table. It costs you everything, including the thing you most cherish, especially the thing you most cherish, that too. Do you feel like yourself going... And then he says what it means to follow him. You begin to hear and you begin to see what he says. I could pick anything, but you begin to follow me means pick sexual ethics. To follow me means there is no sexual, sensual expression anywhere outside of marriage, and marriage is one man to one woman only. That's what marriage is, nothing else. I could pick anything. We could hear him talk about authority. We could hear him talk about women's roles. We could hear him talk about government. We could hear him talk about anything. All of these things offend, maybe even anger, many, many people in the world. Is it you? If, if, if you find that coming at you and you feel like, something rising in you. Wouldn't prudence hold off indignation for just a second and ask, wait a minute, you're this Jesus who is, I've just seen it, full of compassion and love and gracious and, and you care for people and you say, why? Wouldn't prudence say, how does this fit together? And draw near to Jesus and say, can you explain that to me? Wouldn't that be prudent? But what naturally rises in the human heart is proud offense and rejection a stiff-arming with a hint of anger in it. Do you sense any of that in you yourself? Where does it come from? Not from prudence and wisdom, but just from raw pride. Something in us is broken and biased, and you, you see it right there in the response. Seeing Jesus and hearing him, but not in understanding. An offended blindness that shuts eyes and ears against him. Watch out for that. If you find that rising and you watch out for that, it's what leads to death, not life. He says things and demands things of us and expects that he be honored as Lord and surrendered to, trusted, and from trust then obeyed. If you're not a Christian yet, realize this. Realize this about yourself. 
The reason that you're holding him at bay, if you're not a Christian yet, the reason that you're holding him at bay is not intellectual. There are plenty of brilliant people who are Christians. The facts are here. The questions have been asked and answered. It's not intellectual. The reason that you're holding him at bay is that something inside of you insanely, insanely says, I'm better off without him. I'm better off going my own way. Something inside of you does not want him. Question that. Question where that comes from. This Jesus has shown himself to be full of compassion and wisdom and power and grace and mercy, the giver of life to all who trust him. Why do you resist? This Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you life. I'll give you rest. I'll give you hope. Why do you resist that? Not from the facts, but from bias. That's what he's come to forgive and to change and to lift off of you to give you life. If you're not a Christian yet, be alert to that. Be warned about it. It's natural. It rises up in us and it will kill you. Okay. So I do realize something. That most of the people here in front of me and most people who hear this already are Christians, and so you're probably wondering why I'm not talking to you. Actually, I am talking to you. Not exactly in the same way. But I am talking to all of us here because the thing always is, if you've got two categories of people, non-Christian and Christian, the one common category is people. If you're a Christian, something's different in you, but something's very similar in you. <laughs> you're a Christian, but you're one of the people. And I'm certain this is the case with you, in part because the Bible says so, and in part because it is the case with me. I have a people heart still. You have a people heart heart still, and something in you also bristles. Sometimes. Not in the same way, not in all the same places, but something in you also bristles. We are very capable of living in the, we might not call it offended, because we're not used to saying we're offended by Jesus. We, we love him, we trust Jesus. We might not use the word offended, but put off by him, bothered by him, bristling at something from him, that, that we live in that. So what you're looking for, Christian, is not just where am I offended, I'm not, but you might say, where am I resistant? Where do I find that Jesus' obligation on me feels distasteful and I don't want it? Maybe it's in the very same things I mentioned, sexual ethics, roles of the church, relationship to government, whatever. It's a thousand things that could be the place for you. What you're looking for at yourself is, is not, am I a Christian, yes or no? Good, this isn't about me. It is, it's about non-Christians for sure, but it's also about people. So look, for, look at yourself and say, where do I find in me this tendency to say, I, I understand, I hear the call, 
that you are to be honored and my knee is to bow to you. You are the Lord. I hear that. And hear and, and hear. Ah, mm, no. Question that. Be alert to that. That leads to death. That is unbelief. It has tragic consequences. Where, where, the, where the passage ends is, and he did not do many mighty works there. He did some, but not many. Something in this quenches the Spirit of God and drives him away. And Christian, we don't want to live in that spot. Yielded to him, honoring him, lifting him up, me beneath you. That is that is the way that we want to live. That is the way that we are called to live. Him exalted over us. There has been much to show that that's, that's right and appropriate. There has been much to show that that's actually good and wise. See in his teachings and see in his power. But of course, the, the clearest example, the clearest witness to us is, is the conglomerate of things that happened towards the end of this gospel when Jesus heads to the cross. We, we see there one who himself always rightly honored God, saying, I recognize that you don't. And I've come actually to act to save you, to redeem you, to put my spirit in you, to move you to follow my decrees. I'm coming to help you to do that which I require. That is a, that is a great testimony to the kindness and the helpfulness of God. He commands and he helps enable. And then you know what he does after that? the Lord bestows favor and honor on those who are his. The Lord bestows favor and honor. You're fighting for your own honor. How do you get honored? By yielding all of it to Jesus. And he honors you as his beloved child. It's not just right, it's worth it. This is the path to life and the path to honor. Yielded to Jesus and honoring him. So check yourself, Christian or not, check yourself and see where in me do I find my heart rising up and wanting to resist because in some way I'm put off by Jesus' reach. Yield to it. It's the path to life. Don't be offended in pride and let your desire for your own kingdom stand in the way, which is what takes us to the second observation. Take care not to seek for your earthly kingdom and end up rejecting Jesus. Second observation, take care not to seek for your earthly kingdom and end up rejecting Jesus. Chapter 14 sees the scene switch to Herod. Nazareth saw and heard and responded, and now Herod also Here's, and he responds, how, how, what's he going to do? He says, this is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work. Obviously, he's totally wrong. He's totally mistaken. And if you're just reading through this Gospel of Matthew for the first time, you come to here, you would say, where does that come from? What's going on? Which is why Matthew puts in this really long parenthesis. He's got a lengthy parenthetical statement to explain everything here in verses 3 to 12 before he comes back to the flow of the narrative in verse 13. And it's important to see that as we, as we, as we look at the details here, 
13's when Jesus heard of this is not when he heard that John had been killed. That already happened. We're back in the flow of the narrative. When Jesus heard this, when he heard Herod's assessment of him, he responded. So there's, there's a lot to sort through here. There's a lot of details, even a little bit of history to figure out what's going on here. Matthew starts by introducing this man as Herod the Tetrarch, which is quite accurate. That's an office in the Roman Empire, kind of like a governor. We could use the word governor. This then is not King Herod, who was alive when Jesus was born. This is that Herod's son. And though he really wanted to be a king and petitioned Rome to make him a king, like his father had been, Rome never did. He remained a tetrarch, a governor, governing two regions, Galilee, where Jesus is doing all his thing, and Perea, where earlier John the Baptist had been doing his thing. Remember John's ministry. John ministered there, preached there, constantly, stridently denouncing sin and calling for people to repent, to prepare for the coming messianic king and the coming kingdom of God. John's message, repent because God's kingdom is coming. And that did not sit well with Tetrarch Herod. Because Tetrarch Herod constantly wanted to be king. Constantly acted like he already was a king. Constantly bent the law to suit his own whims like kings tend to do. That's what's behind his marriage with this woman who is very cleverly put as his brother Philip's wife. At this point, Herod was already married to her. But that was all contrary to the law. The whole situation was contrary to the law, and John never let him forget it. John never let him forget how he was breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law, so Herod imprisoned him. All the details are right here. We know the story. He has this kingly party, and he makes this this kingly oath to this young teenage girl who danced for them all, and then he gets stuck because of what she asks for. A clear and public violation of the law. You cannot kill a man without a trial. Unless you're a king, you do whatever you want. His king complex is driving him here, a point made so very cleverly by verse 9 that calls him the king. Everybody knew he wasn't a king. We just introduced him as not being a king, but he says the king is stuck in a dilemma, outfoxed by a teenager. But he has to do it to show his, to show his power and authority, and so he, he beheads John. That's all a very interesting story. And it's given rise to tons of art and the very evocative head-on-a-platter metaphor but it's all really just serving here as a flashback to explain what Herod's thinking when he identifies Jesus as John back from the dead. And of course he has all the details wrong, but he has grasped something of the larger situation, and this is now finally the point for us. Long way to get here. John gets this much right, I mean, Herod gets this much right. I seek an earthly kingdom for myself and there is someone here that opposes that by constantly preaching about God's kingdom. 
for the sake of my kingdom, I'm going to have to deal with that. And he chooses to oppose Jesus. We know that's his choice because when Jesus hears this, what Jesus does is he withdraws out of Galilee. He leaves Herod's jurisdiction. Like he withdrew earlier when the Pharisees were threatening conflict, he avoids the showdown that he knows is coming. All this story is here to present us with the same dilemma in front of Herod. Pick your kingdom. Pick your kingdom. You can't seek both God's kingdom and his righteousness and also seek your own personal kingdom here on earth. It always ends up in an either-or situation. There's an opposing force standing in the way of my desire to have my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it should be in heaven. I want to be king. I want to be queen. That rises very naturally in the human heart. It's often what's really behind offense at Jesus. A desire to rule as much as you possibly can here on earth, to control and to steer and guide all around you towards the purposes that you have for your world and for your life. But whether it's John or Jesus, all like the statement coming against us is there's one king and you're not it. Pick. Am I talking to the non-Christians or the Christians in the room? Yes. I'm talking to me in the room too. I'm talking to every single one of us every day. There's one king and you're not it. So choose this day whose kingdom you'll serve. There's a kingdom that we want to set up ourselves, just me and my little fiefdom or, or a, a, a local, political, and national, a kingdom of the world, whatever. There, there are kingdoms that we're constantly trying to set up and all of them are going to fall. And there's another kingdom that starts out really small, really hard to see in the human heart and growing. And that one is worth everything. Do you hear that with understanding? Pick. Choose whose kingdom you're going to serve. You're going to yield control of your life to this one who says, I, I, I'm the Lord, every knee must bow. I'm worthy of all honor. We're going to continue to contend against him and try to deal with the threat. It can't succeed. And you don't want it to succeed. Because our earthly kingdoms actually are empty. The parable of the treasure, the parable of the pearl that we just looked at last week, those aren't illustrating something that's actually false. They're illustrating something that's true. Nothing we have is worth it. We want, you're made to receive, you long for the kingdom that never ends. The king who reigns in goodness. Honor him. Choose this day whom he will serve. Choose Christ. 
He's good and he's right and he brings life. Let me pray. Father, in a lot of ways, there's, there's a lot of that's difficult and sobering in this passage. Will you help it to sit well with us? Different ones of us, Lord, are in different places. Will you, will you speak what needs to be heard? Maybe you would save some today. Maybe you would, you would cause some of us to turn in repentance and to begin to walk with you again. Maybe you would encourage some of us as we, we look at things that are tempting in the world or encouraging us to resist. Different ones, Lord, and you need different things. Please minister to your people here. But over all that, Lord, I want to I pray and say thank you. Because what we need, you have given. We need a king and we need a kingdom and we also need to be able to get there to him. And you've done both. You've provided Jesus to rule and Jesus to save. Thank you. So you open our eyes, please, and open our ears and, and stir our hearts that so we can properly regard him and see him and hear him with understanding and all the sweetness and all the glory and all the life that he offers. Move us in that direction, please, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.